LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the remarkable power of giving people more than they expect. An entrepreneur turns a floundering business into a globally recognized brand. Don't you love stories like that? Well, you're about to hear one. Except the entrepreneur you're going to meet is unusual. He didn't invent new products or markets. He accomplished incredible success with a decidedly low-tech innovation. He created a culture of customer service that was so over the top, it bordered on unreasonable. Here's our producer, Caleb Bissinger, to tell you more. This was a big summer for me. After 13 years together, my girlfriend and I eloped. We got married, just the two of us, at 9 o'clock on a Thursday morning at a courthouse in Santa Barbara. The night before, we ate dinner at a local hotel. Our waiter was this cheerful young guy named Elvis. When he asked what brought us to town, we told him, we're getting married tomorrow. And he goes, on a Thursday? And we're like, yep, at the courthouse, 9 a.m., just the two of us. He said he thought that was cool and he wished us good luck. And then he went to take care of another table. The next morning, we show up at the courthouse, we go to the Hall of Records, and I see this guy sitting there wearing a blazer and a blue button-down shirt. And I think, oh, that's nice. Someone else is getting married. And as I get closer, I think, Wow, that guy really looks like the waiter from last night. And then I realize, oh my God, that is the waiter from last night. Elvis sees us, he comes over, he hands us each a paper cup and says, I just wanted to wish you congratulations and make sure you had a good cup of coffee on your wedding day. That, I have since learned, was an act of unreasonable hospitality. It's a term coined by my guest today, Will Gudara. Here's a working definition. Unreasonable hospitality is bespoke, over-the-top service. It's going to unusual lengths to take care of people. It's making folks feel seen and feel special. This is a skill, a science, an art form that Will perfected during the decade he spent as general manager and eventually co-owner of the restaurant 11 Madison Park. He worked with a brilliant young chef named Daniel Hume and the famed restaurateur Danny Meyer to transform a middling New York City brasserie into the number one restaurant in the world. Yes, you heard that right, number one in the world. And yes, the food was exquisite and the service impeccable. But what really set the restaurant apart, to quote the New York Times' food critic, was their skillful, relentless campaign to spread joy. Here's a quick example. Think of it as an amuse-bouche. One night, a family of four from Spain comes into dinner, and Will notices that the two kids at the table can barely sit still. It's wintertime, it's snowing outside, and the kids, Will realizes, have never seen real snow before. So what does he do? He sends someone out to buy four sleds, and when the family is done, he brings them outside where a chauffeur is waiting to drive them to Central Park so they can go sledding. 
Now you may be thinking, well, that's cute, but it's the kind of thing you can only really do if you run a restaurant that has an $18,000 bottle of wine on the menu. But in his new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect, Will says this idea extends way beyond restaurants. More than three quarters of America's GDP comes from service industries. If embracing unreasonable hospitality helped 11 Madison Park go from being a place known for its seafood towers to becoming the best restaurant in the world, imagine what adopting that mindset could do for people who work in retail, finance, real estate, education, transportation, healthcare, communication. And even if you don't work in one of those industries, it's still worth asking, what would happen if you put delighting your customers and your team at the center of every business decision. So yes, the interview you're about to hear focuses on what it takes to build a best-in-class restaurant. But it has lessons that go way beyond the four walls of a four-star eatery. If you lead a team, if you regularly interact with customers, clients, or colleagues, if you enjoy the music of Miles Davis, then I promise there is something in this conversation for you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Will Gudrara, welcome to The Next Big Idea. Thanks, man. I'm really happy to be here. So your book is called Unreasonable Hospitality. And that is a phrase you scribbled on a napkin in a hotel room late at night in 2010 after drowning your sorrows in a bottle of bourbon. (laughs) Where were you? Why were you so bummed out? And why did that phrase unreasonable hospitality come to you in that moment? It was following my first time at the 50 Best Awards. Now, the 50 Best is the organization that ranks every restaurant in the world against one another. And I had been at my then restaurant, 11 Madison Park, for a few years before we were finally added to that list. And (laughs) I went to the awards, very, very excited to be on the list, finally, and very, very excited to see where we would place. And we came in last place. We were number 50. Still a huge honor, we should say. Well, you know what? It's so funny. That's something that a lot of people jump in to question my perspective around, right? You can focus on the fact that you were last place, or you can focus on the fact that you were one of the top 50 in the world. I actually think that sometimes choosing the perspective where you <laughs> where you allow yourself to sit in anger can be a good thing. I think anger is an undervalued emotion in this hmm. day and age. I don't believe that anyone should sit in anger or disappointment for too long, but sometimes I do think the feeling of disappointment or anger or failure or whatever you want to call it can be a motivating fact. And if we can sit in it for long enough and then get out of it and allow those emotions to to push us, compel us to grow, to learn, to evolve, I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah. So when we came in 50, I went through the stages of grief, first anger, obviously, and then skipped past that and ultimately 
landed on acceptance. And at this point, we had left the the after party of the 50 Best Awards early, went back to the hotel, grabbed a bottle of whiskey from behind the bar, sat in the steps, started drinking and processing through all of that. But when I got to acceptance, it was for the following reason. See, I, I mean, listen, it's patently absurd to say that one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. But that list acknowledges is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants at any given time. And at that point in our evolution, we'd been doing it for four years. We were excellent, undeniably. Our service was as close to technically perfect as possible. Our food was delicious and thoughtful and creative and beautiful. And our dining room was gorgeous. But those excellences or the the work we had done to become so excellent, while they were the reason we were on the list in the first place, when we really paused to think about it, we hadn't yet actually done anything impactful. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm trying to accomplish something, I look at the people that have accomplished it before me, study what they did, try to learn from it. And so that night, I started looking at the other restaurants that had topped that list before us. There was one on the coast of Spain called El Bulli, which the chef Ferran Adria really pioneered what in my industry is called molecular gastronomy, um, a technique where you use stabilizers and all these various chemicals to cook. And he was unreasonable in pursuit of innovating those techniques. And whether or not you've even heard of molecular gastronomy, if you've ever been to a restaurant, you've probably experienced some small dose of the things he innovated. Right. If you've ever had foam, you have him to thank. Exactly. There's a restaurant in Copenhagen called Noma where they really pioneered like foraging for local ingredients and and really kind of did a deep dive into fermentation. They were unreasonable in pursuit of those things. And similarly, they have influenced how so many restaurants around the world cook. My dad gave me this paperweight when I was a kid on it. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? You know, far too many people are scared to say their most audacious goals out loud for fear that if they do and don't achieve them, they'll let themselves and those around them down. But if you don't have the courage to dream your biggest dreams out loud, it's very unlikely you'll ever achieve them. And so that night I wrote on a cocktail napkin, we will be number one in the world. But a goal without a strategy is nothing more than a pipe dream. I needed to figure out what our impact was going to be. And that night I decided that if those chefs who had topped the list earlier were unreasonable in pursuit of product and and relentless in pursuit of how it needed to change, I decided that our impact was going to come by being unreasonable in pursuit of people and relentless in pursuit of the one thing that will never change, which is our collective desire to feel seen, our human wanting to feel welcome. And so underneath, we will be number one in the world. I wrote those two words, unreasonable hospitality. We're going to talk a lot in this conversation about 11 Madison Park and how you put unreasonable hospitality into practice there, first as general manager, later as co-owner. But before we get to that, I want to talk just a little bit about you. You're this rare person, Will, who who found his calling really young. I wonder what drew you to the restaurant world and, and was there a moment, an experience that made you sit up and say, this is what I want my life to be? When I was a kid, when I was about four, my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer and the ensuing radiation treatment that she got after they removed what they could of the tumor ultimately rendered her into becoming a quadriplegic. 
And I think that experience was when not I fell in love with restaurants, but I started to understand how unbelievably good caring for other people could feel. Hmm. But there was, as tends to be the case with anyone, that one moment that I'll always remember as having been impactful. And the thing that got me to fully fall in love and commit, and it happened at a very early age. For my 12th birthday, my dad took me to a restaurant called The Four Seasons. Listen, I don't remember much about the meal. In fact, there's this this quote by Maya Angelou, um, which I think is just one of the greatest quotes ever about hospitality, whether it was intended to be about hospitality or not. It's people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Yeah. The same was true of that dinner. I I don't really remember what I ate. I remember a couple little things. I you know, I don't remember exactly what they did for me. I do remember that it was the first time I wore a blazer. I insisted my dad <laughs> got me one of those like navy blue ones with the gold buttons. I remember it was the first time I dropped my napkin and someone picked it up and brought me a new one and gave it to me and called me sir. Um, <laughs> but really what I remember was how it made me feel that for a few hours, all that was left in the world was me and my dad sitting across the table from one another. When you make the choice to focus on hospitality, you have this beautiful opportunity, perhaps even responsibility to create your own little magical world in a world that needs more magic. Hmm. And the first time I felt that so clearly was there in that room. So your first job after college was working in New York City for for Danny Meyer and his restaurant group. For listeners who don't recognize that name, Danny Meyer is, I mean, arguably the most celebrated restaurateur in America. He is the guy behind Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern. He's maybe best known now as the founder of Shake Shack. To get a job working in his orbit, I mean, that's like a computer scientist getting hired by Steve Jobs or a college ball player being drafted by the Yankees, right? Like, why was it such a big deal to get to go to work with him? And what made him so singular? What makes Danny Meyer so special? Well, as much as I always knew I wanted to go into restaurants, I also knew I didn't want to be a chef. I wanted to be the guy in the front. I wanted to be the guy throwing the party. I wanted to be the guy taking care of people, having that sense of instant gratification when I brought people joy or served them an amazing meal, whatever it was. And there was no one for me in what I was trying to do to really look up to. It was just Danny. Danny was the guy. Yeah. Danny had set out to create an experience as excellent as those of the older school French kind of fine dining restaurants, but with a Midwestern sensibility where they prioritized kindness over stuffiness, where it was all about, well, just taking care of people. And he was the one guy, like, I, I think we all need our heroes. We need the people that do what we want to do and do it at a high level and do it with integrity that we can look up to. And if you can make a life for yourself where you get to actually work and learn from one of those people, it's, it's kind of a dream come true. And in 2006, when you were, I think like maybe 27, 
Danny came to you and said that he wanted you to be the general manager of one of his restaurants, 11 Madison Park. And at the time, it was a you know really well-regarded upscale French brasserie. It, uh, I think, had two stars from the New York Times. So, you know, it was very solid. But Danny wanted to take it to the next level. He wanted you to help him do that. What do you think he saw in you? Why do you think he trusted you? So Danny had started the process of evolving at Medicine Park before he came to me. He'd hired an amazingly talented general manager with a ton of experience in fine dining. He brought in the chef who similarly had extraordinary experience in three Michelin star restaurants throughout Europe. He brought in a bunch of other people who all shared that extraordinary experience in fine dining. And what he quickly realized was that in bringing in all these people from outside of his company with such experience in hitting the highest heights, because By the way, as as great as Danny's restaurants were at the time, he had never had a four-star restaurant. Mm. And so he was bringing in people with the experience of having run that kind of restaurant to help him achieve it. But in doing so, the strength of his culture was getting lost. And I had worked for Danny since graduating college, right? And so I'd grown up in his system. I often say that culture can't be taught it has to be caught like i was fully indoctrinated into danny's way of thinking and way of doing and i was also young and excited and wanting to do great things and i think danny's great perspective was that if 11 medicine park didn't have someone anchoring it within the culture of union square hospitality group the name of his company it wouldn't actually be the expression of a four-star restaurant that he was looking to help build. You mentioned that by the time you joined, he'd already hired a a brilliant young chef. This is Daniel Hume, who started transforming the menu. You know, there's that famous maxim that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. (laughs) And I think the same can be said about talking about food. Nevertheless, I'd love if you could just give us a little verbal taste of the kind of food that Daniel was starting to serve. The food was precise, it was delicious, and it was elemental. I think when you think about like fine dining French food, which has for many, many years, it's not as much the case anymore, dominated kind of the highest echelons of restaurants. It's more like heavy French cuisine, right? With like these heavy sauces and you walk out of the restaurant and and your stomach hurts in spite of how delicious it was. (laughs) Daniel brought like a lightness to the food, a precision perhaps based on his Swiss upbringing and just like a, a deliciousness to all of it. I mean, his food was amazing. Just, just amazing. So he was running the kitchen. You came in as general manager. What was your partnership like? I mean, how how does that, you know, I think for someone who's never worked in the restaurant world, like what is the balance? First of all, maybe what does a general manager do? And what is the balance between head chef and GM? I mean, the general manager does everything in a restaurant except for make the food. (laughs) So... I mean, you're the artistic director of the experience and of the brand. You're managing the business and the reservations and the service and the facility and the operations. In many restaurants, the balance between the dining room and the kitchen is askew. 
there's often been tension between the people serving the food and those making it. It's just kind of an inherent part of the restaurant business where the people in the dining room think the people in the kitchen are mean and the people in the kitchen think the people in the dining room are lazy. And when we started talking about pursuing this partnership, the first thing I said is, hey, I'll come and help you guys do what you're trying to do, but not unless there's a genuine partnership between the kitchen and the dining room. Daniel totally agreed. And so, you know, we worked really, really hard to develop a strong sense of bond and and trust between the two of us. And in doing so, communicate that to the entire team. You also, I think, went to great lengths to communicate to them the vision the two of you had for how you were going to take this restaurant and transform it. And you actually had a mission statement, which was, quote, to be the four-star restaurant for the next generation. And I want to just spend a minute breaking that down a little bit because it's kind of a fascinating concept. So first, you want to be the four-star restaurant, right? And that refers to the New York Times' rating system. And as I mentioned before, when you joined, 11 Madison had two stars. You wanted to get up to four, which is like, I mean, that's a, that's a really audacious goal. I think there are currently maybe like four or five restaurants in the whole city that have that many stars. And then second, you wanted to be the restaurant, as you say, for the next generation. That That's really interesting to me. I wonder if you could say... What do you mean by that? Why, why was that also part of your mission? A mission statement to become a four-star restaurant without, without a strategy isn't really a mission statement. That's just a goal. Right. For the next generation, that defined how we were going to do it. Because when I looked around at the other four-star restaurants, they were incredible and inspiring and excellent and delicious. But they weren't the kind of places I necessarily felt comfortable eating at at the time. I mean, I was, I was a kid when I started at 11 Madison Park. And I don't believe you can actually accomplish anything of extreme significance if you're not creating something that you yourself want to experience, that you yourself want to receive. And so we wanted to show that you can have all the excellence without all the pretense that it would be the kind of restaurant that was not built for our parents, but for us and the many people like us who wanted to experience a meal like that, but wanted to do it in an environment that we also felt comfortable in. You alluded a minute ago to the tension that existed at 11 Madison Park when you started and and that exists in a lot of different restaurants between kitchen and dining room. And I think one of your missions early on, as you said, was was to break down that tension, was to create a really cohesive culture that everyone at the restaurant felt like they participated in. And I want to talk through a couple of the leadership strategies that you applied to do that. Let's maybe start with meetings. I think meetings get a really bad rap these days. I was actually reading not that long ago about this company that before you can schedule an internal meeting, you have to add up the number of employees you are inviting, multiply that by the average hourly salary at the company so that you are sure that whatever meeting this is justifies the expense in time (laughs) to the company. But you come out on totally the other side of this. You're a fan of meetings, right? Why is that? In the early days of Madison Park, I was 
facing two internal tensions, that between the kitchen and the dining room, and that between two different groups that bridged both the kitchen and the dining room, those that had been at the restaurant for a long time and did not want to change, and those that were brought in to affect that change. Right. You had kind of the purists and the disruptors. Exactly. And both of those divides needed to be navigated and managed concurrently in order to achieve what we were trying to. There's a 30-minute meeting at most restaurants right before you open the doors to serving the public. We call it pre-meal. And I believe it's the most important 30 minutes of the day. Because when done well, that meeting is when the people you work with cease being a collection of individuals and come together as a trusting team, unlocking a collective creativity and capacity. And without unlocking that, without bringing the team fully together and on the same page, I believe it's impossible to do anything of significance. Um, I believe that meeting is about, you know, talking about the, the how and the why more than it is the what. I believe it's an opportunity for a leader to share moments of inspiration and invite people to do the same. Um, I believe if every customer service organization did their own version of a daily pre-meal, customer service as we know it would change forever. Hmm. The other day I was at this conference and in conversation with someone and they said, how did you sell your team on your vision? And I said, well, I didn't. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of leaders make is they try to sell their team on their vision. I articulated my vision and then I invited them to be a part of it. Let's talk about another leadership moment. This one is kind of, it's kind of fun, actually. Just before you arrived at 11 Madison Park, a critic for the New York Observer gave the restaurant three and a half out of four stars in review. So it's great. But it was not all praise. She wrote, the place needs a bit of Miles Davis. Now, I have no idea what that means. I gather <laughs> you also had no idea what that meant. Yeah. I wanted my own team to have our language, our core values, our non-negotiables. And we were struggling to find the path towards articulating them. And that line kind of came back to me. And so with the team, we started researching everything we could about Miles. Not the music he created, but the approach he took to making the music. Mm. And my gosh, the list we came up with, we, we came up with a list of 11 words for all the obvious reasons. And we just resonated so powerfully with them that that kind of became like the list of our non-negotiables going forward. And on the list were words like endless reinvention and collaborative and forward moving and cool. As if we were trying to be the four-star restaurant for the next generation, it did need to be cooler, right? right? Cool, I think, is an undervalued word in corporate America. Endless reinvention, I think, was another one we really gripped onto. I mean, over the years to follow, we would change so many times, so dramatically, not for the sake of change, but, well, because, I mean, I was 26, 26 when I got there. Yeah. I mean, I grew up within the walls of that restaurant, and... As I changed, so too needed the restaurant to change, right? Because I don't think that you can become the best if you're serving an experience that is inauthentic. The business needs to, to grow up 
as you do. It needs to change as you do. But the first one we gripped onto was collaborative. You know, we had this moment of realization where up until that point, Daniel and I in the back in our little office were making all the big decisions. And yet, I think at the time we had 130, 140 people on the team. Seeing that on the list was the beginning of us, like recognizing that the collective brain power of the entire group, the collective creativity of the entire group would always be so much greater than that of the two of us. I think of knowledge and creativity and inspiration as a bank account. If you have a bunch of people making withdrawals and only a couple people making deposits, you're going to run out really quickly. Conversely, if you get everyone on the team making deposits constantly, your accounts will overflow. Well, if that's the case, the creativity account at 11 Madison Park was definitely overflowing after Will's first year as general manager. In January 2007, Frank Bruni, who was then the food critic at the New York Times, wrote a review of the restaurant. When did you last look at 11 Madison Park? He asked. If the answer is more than a year ago, look again. He gave them three stars, which meant they were one step closer to fulfilling their goal of becoming a four-star restaurant. It was a good time to be Will Guadara. But then? Not in generations has Wall Street absorbed the number of body blows it took today. The American financial system is rocked to its foundation as top Wall Street institutions topple under a mountain of debt. Suddenly, 11 Madison Park went from being a restaurant on the rise to a restaurant fighting for survival. A recession like that hits and your business has all been eradicated. We had invested so much of ourselves in pursuit of the ultimate goal that we were trying to balance how to keep the restaurant alive without having to undo all the progress we'd made. When we come back, Will and his team tried to pull 11 Madison Park out of a death spiral. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. When I was a kid, there was this book that I loved called Fortunately. Here's how it begins. Fortunately, one day, Ned got a letter that said, please come to a surprise party. But unfortunately, the party was in Florida and he was in New York. Fortunately, a friend loaned him an airplane. Unfortunately, the motor exploded. Fortunately, never mind, you get the idea. That book reminds me of Will Godara's journey. Fortunately, one day, Will got a tap on the shoulder from renowned restaurateur Danny Meyer, who said, please come be the general manager of 11 Madison Park. Unfortunately, the restaurant was in bad shape. Some of the staff were fine dining purists who wanted to follow tradition, and others, like Will and head chef Daniel Hume, were young disruptors who wanted to try something new. Fortunately, Will was able to deploy a handful of smart leadership techniques that got everyone on the same page. And 11 Madison Park was rewarded with a three-star review in the New York Times. 
Unfortunately, right after that review came out, the global economy tanked. The moment we got three stars, we celebrated, right? But we weren't there to build a three-star restaurant. We were there to build a four-star restaurant. And so that dose of affirmation did not give us a reason to rest on our laurels. In fact, it was all the motivation we needed to start pushing even harder. And what that means is more investment, more staff, higher quality ingredients, more steps of service, more, 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 more. And yet we were still only a three-star restaurant, which meant we were charging three-star prices. So the restaurant was already in like a precarious financial situation going into 08. And so when you're running a restaurant with four-star expenses, but only charging three-star prices, and then a recession like that hits and your business is all but eradicated, you're on your back foot. And while we were struggling dramatically financially, we had invested so much of ourselves in pursuit of the ultimate goal that we were trying to balance how to keep the restaurant alive without having to undo all the progress we'd made towards our eventual destination. How were you sleeping at night? I mean, this must have been, you, you must have been afraid that the restaurant was going to go under, right? And that everything you'd worked so hard for was just going to disappear. And we should say, too, you're like 27, you know? You're, you're. <laughs> Well, I'll say like, it's probably one of the reasons why so many game changing companies were started by young people, because I mean, my gosh, if I were in a situation like that again, right now, it probably would make it much harder for me mm. to sleep now than it ever made for me. Then I think the older you get, the more success you've had, the more you have to lose at that age, you're just so confident, so driven, and so naive to the consequences of the world that, yes, yeah. okay, it was hard and stressful, but not to the point of it being paralyzing. Okay, so you're trying to figure out how to keep the restaurant afloat, which is a challenge. And then one day at lunch, Frank Bruni comes back. This is the New York Times food critic. He's, he's just reviewed the restaurant like a year ago. He's back again. He's going to review it again. Yes, Obviously, you must have been excited because, like you said, you had been investing all this time and energy to try to get from three to four stars. And this is the guy who can help, you know, who's going to decide your fate, right? At the same time, you, you must be looking around and thinking, oh, shit, he's never going to give four stars to a restaurant that's half empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, those moments are, are wild, right? Because they are at the same time overwhelmingly exciting and profoundly, paralyzingly scary. Because that's your shot, right? If he comes in and eats and you don't see him again, well, it means that he probably just wasn't impressed enough with the experience to give you another look. And so weeks turn into months. You know he's probably going to come back. He's going to give you the benefit of the doubt. He's going to try the menu a few other times so he can sort of judge the consistency of it. You say that that anxiety, that when is Bruni coming back and how is he going to like his meal, is actually what pushed Eleven Madison to really rise to the challenge of being a four-star restaurant. I'd love for you to just expand on that. 
the reason that I believe that's when we actually became a four-star restaurant was because what I found after that first visit was our team was depleted and rudderless because we were there every single day and consistently disheartened by the fact that he wasn't showing up. And what I decided to do is to gamify it. A three-star restaurant can't become a four-star restaurant the moment a critic walks in. They're reviewing you based on who you are, right? Like most restaurants knew who the critic are is. And when they walk in, you try to put them at your best table with your best server and serve them the best plate of food. But it doesn't really matter, right? If you're not a great restaurant, you're not going to trick them into thinking you're great. Mm-hmm. And so every single day, we would determine a table that was going to be the critic table. And so every night for close to a year, we pretended as if we were serving the New York Times food critic, even if we weren't. And it just gave us the ability to stay in that frame of mind. By the time Bruni started coming back in, we were no longer scared. Sure. We'd been putting in the work. Now we were just excited. So finally, after months, on August 11th, 2009, the review is published in the New York Times. Do you remember like where you were, what you were doing when, when you first heard it, when you first saw it? I was on table 64. A single diner was eating there. He was a regular of ours. He had ordered the ricotta gnocchi, which we finished table side with a drizzle of olive oil. He was on his phone. As I was drizzling the gnocchi, he jumped out, out of his chair and said four stars. Honestly, with everything we went on to accomplish, that was perhaps the biggest moment, right? Because it wasn't just the gratification of having achieved what at the time felt like an impossibly big goal. Yeah. But in that moment, it was clear, okay, we're not going to go out of business. Right. And it was the case because we went from being half full on a daily basis, closing off parts of our dining room, having to cut paper towels in half, doing whatever we could to not lose an overwhelming amount of money on a monthly basis to being full, really, from that day forward. I want to read just a couple of lines from that four-star review. 11 Madison Park now ranks among the most alluring and impressive restaurants in New York. It has reached this pinnacle because its principal owner, Danny Meyer, made a key move in 2006, bringing aboard the chef Daniel Hum, and because together they decided that this restaurant could and should shine as bright as any other. Obviously, listeners will notice that he singles out Danny Meyer and head chef Daniel Hum as the stars of the show, as kind of the brains of the operation. Did that hurt at all? Oh, at that point, no, not at all. When you choose to go work for Danny, as long as you work for him, right, your success becomes his. It'd be different if that was the talk track within the company. Internally, Danny was the first to give me all the credit in the world. What was in the paper at that point was much less important to me, outside of the number of stars. <laughs> so, one year after that four-star review, 11 Madison Park is named 50th best restaurant in the world. This is the, the moment we were talking about earlier. 
And this is that moment where you decide that the thing that is going to bring you from number 50 to number one, the thing that is going to set this restaurant apart, in addition to the incredible food and the beautiful space, is unreasonable hospitality. And you thought that the best opportunity to test drive this thesis was right at the restaurant's front door, at the, at the maitre d' stand. What did you think was wrong with the experience most guests were having when they showed up at the restaurant? And how did you redesign it? Well, first, I think something that's relevant to say is, okay, I came up wanting to be the hospitality guy, right? I wanted to be the guy throwing the party, all this stuff. But I think what can happen when you're focused on becoming the best is you can go back to the playbook that's always worked for other people. Mm-hmm. And becoming a four-star restaurant is not about hospitality, or it historically wasn't about hospitality. It was about excellence. I lost a bit of that over time and started being so vehemently focused on excellence that I forgot about the power of hospitality. And so that moment when I wrote those words was a return to self as well as a new call to arms. The first thing we did, you know, you say the front door and I'll, I'll, go deep into that in a moment, but it was kind of looking at the entire experience as a whole. And so, yeah, we started to really break down every single part of the journey, interrogating the experience and isolating every single customer touch point so that we could then with intention and creativity, make every single one of them a little more awesome and raindrops make oceans, right? If you make as many of the steps as possible, a little bit better, in culmination, it's transformational. The front door at our restaurant worked the same as, well, every other front door at every restaurant, right? You walk in, there's a person standing behind a podium with the glare of an iPad shining in their face. You walk in, they say, do you have a reservation? You give them your name. They look at the computer, they stab around a little bit. They turn to the person next to them. They say, take him to table 52. And they walk you through the dining room and bring you to the table. When you actually interrogate that touch point and explain it the way I just did, you're like, oh my gosh, this could be so much better. Yeah. And so we did something that wasn't hard, but it most certainly required trying a lot harder. We got rid of the podium such that you walked in and there was just a person standing there. They'd greet you by name. They'd engage you in conversation. And then at some point without even a word, someone would walk in and just escort you to a table. The way we actually did that was we still had a podium. It was just around the corner. You couldn't see it. Instead of one maitre d', we had two. They would communicate via sign language. We'd Google people so that we had the picture of them when they walked in the door. We could greet them by name and there was sign language happening such that the other maitre d' was communicating with the host. And it was this whole technical affair. But the magic trick was that when you walked in, it felt not dissimilar to going to a friend's house for dinner. They throw open the door. They greet you with enthusiasm by name, and they invite you in for a great night. The other thing I love about it, too, is I think for a lot of people, the experience of going to a great restaurant is very anxiety-producing, right? I mean, that moment you described of the host or hostess kind of stabbing around on the iPad, 
in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh shit, what if it's not there? Did, what if the reservation got lost? What if it's the wrong day? This is going to be yeah. so embarrassing. <laughs> and I think that shows up again and again. Like you look at people ordering wine and they kind of sort of sheepishly like point to the bottle they're interested in, but they're so embarrassed that they're going to mispronounce the name on the label. Or even like, yeah, there's a sense that you're somehow like asking too much at a restaurant. I was I was at the dinner just a few nights ago and I was seated kind of where I could see the entrance to the bathroom. And this woman came down the hall and stood outside the bathroom door and, and pulled on it and pushed on it and it didn't open. And I think she assumed someone was, was in there. And she stood there for like, I think 10 minutes and finally just walked back to her table. Five minutes later, I saw someone else go to the bathroom and it's a slide door. It's not a push mm. or a pull, it's a slide. No waiter or hostess or anything came over to that person and said, actually, it's a slide door. It's, I don't think anyone's in there right now. Or there was no little sign that says, this is a slide. Or there was no architect that said, most people aren't familiar with pocket doors and it's a very dark hallway. I don't know if that's the best move here. So I love this idea of like, how do you eliminate those moments of friction and angst that I think are actually really common in the fine dining experience? Well, I think they're fine dining in any experience. Yeah. Any experience. When you look at any experience, whatever you do for a living, if you look at the customer experience and you interrogate every touch point, you can alleviate so much of that friction and angst, right? If you put on a list, okay, people go into the bathroom is a step in the customer journey. And then you say, how do we make that more awesome? Then you walk it yourself. And that's when you realize the slide door can be disconcerting. And then you add a beautiful sign or you change the door or whatever you need to do. Yeah. I mean, my favorite example of what we did during this time when we were interrogating the journey was with the check. I love this. I mean, the check is an impossible moment in the meal. A, whether people realize it or not, you become increasingly impatient the moment you ask for the check. If it takes us too long to give it to you, you kind of, people like get upset quickly. Mm -hmm. But you can't drop the check on someone's table before they've asked for it. They'll think you're trying to rush them out. And it's a particularly hard part in a fine dining experience because no matter how much you love the experience, that bill is big and it can like kind of throw cold water onto the experience when you realize how much it costs. And it's the moment where it's, you're no longer at a friend's house. You, this is a transact. It's very transactional. Exactly. Exactly. And because it's transactional, which listen, anything that feels too transactional cannot feel that hospitable. No restaurant has ever paused for long enough to consider how to make it awesome. You just try to get through it as quickly as possible. But once we'd identified it as a touch point in the experience, we were able to figure out how to make it better. And what we came up with was this, when you were done, when we were almost hundred percent positive, you weren't ordering anything else. We'd walk over to the table. We'd put a glass down in front of each guest, pour a splash of cognac into each glass, and then leave the entire bottle on the table saying, Hey, this is with our compliments. I'm going to leave the entire bottle here. Help yourself to as much as you'd like. And then we'd put the check down in the corner of the table and say, Hey, and whenever you're ready, the check is right here. What that did was a bunch of stuff, right? A, no one could ever feel like we were trying to rush them out. We'd just given them an mm -hmm. entire bottle of free booze, right? Um, B, no one ever had to ask the, for the check again. C, during the moment where people realized how much it cost, the transaction kind of invariably reared its head. We matched it with a gesture of profound generosity. Can you tell the hot dog story? Because this mm. is another iconic moment in the evolution of unreasonable hospitality. Yeah, this is truly when 
I think I started to figure out what unreasonable hospitality meant. It was about a year and a half, I think, after that first year coming in number 50. Um, I was in the dining room on a busier than normal lunch service, and I found myself in the dining room helping the servers. And I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York just to eat at great restaurants. And I overheard them talking while I was clearing the plates. And they were going on and on about all the amazing meals they'd had. Danielle, La Bernadette, Momofuku, now 11 Madison Park. But then one woman jumped in and said, yeah, but you know, we never had, we never got one of the hot dogs off a street cart. And it was like one of those light bulb moments in a cartoon. I, I went back to the kitchen, dropped off the plates, ran outside of the, the hot dog cart, grabbed the hot dog, ran back inside of the kitchen. Then I was joke came. The hard part was convincing the chef to serve it in our four star <laughs> restaurant. But eventually I convinced him and he cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces and added a swish of ketchup and mustard and a perfect little scoop of sauerkraut and relish to each plate. And before their final savory course, which at the time was our signature honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought over what we in New York call a dirty water dog. <laughs> and I explained it. I said, hey, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's that New York hot dog. And they freaked out. Oh, my God. You know, athletes always go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they did wrong. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did right to make sure they keep on doing that thing. That's truly how you take these moments of organic brilliance that happen and grab onto them and hold onto them and put a system behind them such that they become a part of the fabric of your organization. And so I went to the tapes and the hot dog. What happened? So that that could happen. And what did we need to start doing to make sure it started happening all the time? There were three things that went into it. And I, I think this is important. A, I needed to be present. Mm -hmm. I think in way too many cases, we are so focused on efficiency and managing our to-do list that we have an inability to slow down for long enough to listen to the people around us. And if you don't really genuinely listen to people, you have an inability to pick up on the things that will help you provide them with the most joy. B, it required taking what we were doing seriously, but not taking ourselves so seriously, which is a really big problem in customer service, especially luxury customer service. Like brands are important, right? There are bumper stickers to the world. But if you let your brand, effectively your self-imposed standards, tell you what you are and are not allowed to do to bring other people joy, then you've lost touch with what you're ultimately there to accomplish. Yeah. And then three, like I really genuinely believe that hospitality is about making people feel seen. And if that's the case, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual in unreasonable hospitality. One size fits one. The greatest gestures are those that are specific to the person receiving them. The hot dog at that point genuinely became our new true North. And those three things became the roadmap. You started calling these moments legends because they were to the guests. Oh my God, that was legendary. <laughs> and the thing I love about it is some of your legends were super complicated and, and I think both expensive and logistically difficult to pull off. You know, so for instance, you, you had guests coming in who I think you found out had never been sledding. And so when they finished their meal, this was the wintertime, they stepped outside and there was a black 
car and it whisked them away to Central Park and you had sleds or toboggans and they got to do a little sledding and they finished and you had hot chocolate ready for them. Uh, You discovered another couple had come to the restaurant because they'd ended up having to cancel a tropical vacation and this was their sort of consolation prize was eating at 11 Madison. And so you brought in sand and made them tropical cocktails. I mean, this is elaborate stuff. But the thing I think is great about the hot dog example and a lot of the other legend examples is that it's really simple and it's really inexpensive to execute. And I think one potential criticism of unreasonable hospitality, you know, you can imagine someone who runs like a small restaurant far from any major city saying, I can't have people whisked away in black cars and I'm just, I'm barely getting by. But when you realize that it's these little things that can have such a big impact, it's a hot dog, it's hearing a a group of parents questioning the ethics of the tooth fairy and deciding that whenever they get up to go to the bathroom, you're going to sneak a quarter underneath their napkin that you fold and put back on the table. Like These are actually fairly easy, certainly from a cost perspective, to execute. It's just about having that empathy and curiosity and excitement about delighting your customer. The people that say, I can't afford to do this. Okay, A, it does not need to cost that much. But B, are you sure you can afford not to? Mm. You know, I think we're, we're in this moment right now and I, I, I always say I believe we're on the precipice of becoming a hospitality economy. And whether that's because of having come out of COVID and people have kind of reconnected with their need for human connection or um, the digital transformation now dominated with AI where like the value of a human touch means more than it ever did before. Or again, with the remote hybrid workplace where people are isolated so much more and those that can lean in and make them feel genuinely seen are going to be the places that they're inclined to want to go to over and over and over again. I just think that investment matters more now than ever before. I was talking to a major auto manufacturer recently, and one of the people asked a similar question. We don't have the margins to do this. And I said, well, you don't have the margins to do it until you decide that it's a non-negotiable. I believe the return on these investments are astronomical. Like you read the book and those stories just came off your tongue effortlessly, right? Those yeah. stories are easy to remember and exciting to retell. And the more things you do like that for people, the more emotional nerves you strike, the more inclined they are to go out and be a rabid ambassador of your brand. It becomes the most powerful marketing engine you could ever ask for. But also, once you implement a culture of unreasonable hospitality, in our case, we're giving all the people in the dining room this extraordinary gift where they were no longer just serving plates of food that a chef had created. They were imbuing the experience with their own creativity. You know, everyone's struggling with retention and recruiting and everyone's doing the same stuff, both of which are important. People are paying people a bit more, trying to give them more quality of life. And I believe that's kind of the equivalent of treating the symptoms as opposed to the underlying condition, Mm -hmm. giving the people on your team a sense of importance in their work. In that case, giving them the gift of being able to give other people gifts, giving them ownership, empowerment, agency. I think that ends up saving you an extraordinary amount of money down the line. 
When we come back, Will's commitment to unreasonable hospitality brings about a surprise business opportunity. But before he can take it, he'll have to decide if he's ready to leave behind his mentor, Danny Meyer. And then Will returns to the 50 Best Restaurant Awards. Will the changes they've made at 11 Madison Park be enough to boost its ranking? Welcome back to the show. In 2010, shortly after 11 Madison Park received that four-star review in the New York Times, Will Gudara and his chef-slash-partner Daniel Hume were approached by a developer who wanted them to own and operate the restaurant in a new hotel, The Nomad. Will and Daniel went to their boss, Danny Meyer, and said, look, we'd love to be owners of our own thing at The Nomad and keep working for you at 11 Madison Park. Danny thought about it for a while, and then he said no. He told the guys he couldn't be partners with them at one restaurant and competitors at another just a few blocks away, but he had a possible solution. Would Will and Daniel ever consider buying 11 Madison Park from him? Without missing a beat, they said yes. You know, I think when you feel that entrepreneurial urge, when you have that feeling in your gut that trumps everything and it's an itch that you need to scratch um i mean listen i will sing danny's praises until the day i die but at that point i was ready to to be the guy right i I think people get to that point where you're ready to be the person and i said yes right away not actually understanding what it (laughs) would entail and i'm grateful for my inexperience at the time because the next six months were extraordinarily challenging where i had to figure out so many things i'd never had any experience doing before in order to bring that whole vision to life right yeah we should say i mean you and daniel didn't just have the money to buy the restaurant sitting in your in your checking accounts you had to go out and fundraise and find you know (laughs) not making very much money at the time We, we needed to like learn how to raise debt and equity and establish HR departments and finance departments and all of it benefits. And, you know, like the myriad of things that go into bringing a company to life, Uh, but start out by deciding what you want to achieve and then trust in your ability to figure out how to do it. So you succeeded in buying out Danny. You succeeded in, in opening a restaurant at the nomad, which was, a really big hit kind of right out of the gate, three-star review in the New York Times. And then you succeeded in the goal that you had been chasing. Number one in the world's 50 best restaurants list and therefore the world's best restaurant from New York. It's 11 Madison Park. There are 150 people at 11 Madison Park watching this online. Guys, (laughs) we did it. That's 2017. Not long after, you and the head chef, Daniel, you had been collaborating for for nearly a decade at this point, but you started to have some problems. I wonder if you could just say quickly, to the extent that you're comfortable, kind of what what happened there and and the decision it, it led you to make. 
And I think the way I say it in the book is we fell out of love. We started prioritizing different things and wanting different things for the company and for ourselves as individuals. And the tension between us, which for so long had been one of the things that propelled us forward, became something that was holding the company back. And, you know, eventually I had a change of heart. My, my dad early in that process said, Hey, this is going to be a really hard season in your life. And at every turn, ask yourself what right looks like and do that. And I think that was amazing advice because while so much of life exists in the gray, oftentimes when it comes to what's right and what's wrong, it's pretty black and white. So I just said, Hey, buy me out. Having absolute faith that I had other mountains to climb in life and in work. And the best thing for the company and for me was to probably just seize on that as a moment to transition into something new. And man, I'm so grateful for that decision. That decision is what led to me writing that Mm -hmm. book, um, which has now given me the opportunity to start this agency where we're working with all sorts of companies and all sorts of disciplines, helping them make the choice to become a part of the hospitality industry by investing in their relationship capital accounts. I've spoken to everyone from financial institutions to real estate companies, to luxury retail, to lawn care professionals and (laughs) urologists. And I think you get to a certain point and you want to feel like you're making some amount of impact. And watching how all that I learned over the course of my journey is helping other people pursue their journey in a new way. Well, it's honestly one of the best feelings I've had. Well, I can say this. Your book has made an impact on me. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Will Godara is the founder of the hospitality agency Thank You, and author of Unreasonable Hospitality, the remarkable power of giving people more than they expect. One last note before I go, if you've watched the new season of The Bear on Hulu, that hot dog story Will told will probably sound familiar. I know you guys have probably waited a very long time to be here. Thank you. Uh, but I couldn't live with myself if I let this beautiful family leave Chicago without sampling one of my personal favorite dishes, Pequod's deep dish. No. Oh, you did not hear me say that. (gasps) Manja, baby. (laughs) Oh, my. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the first time one of the books we featured on this podcast has inspired a plot line on a hit TV show. And you can't see it because this is a podcast, but oh, my gosh, that deep dish looks amazing. Today's episode is written, cut, and hosted by me, Kayla Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. Our executive producer is Rufus Griscom. The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network always gives us more than we expect. And with that, I'm just going to leave this bottle of cognac here with my compliments. Have as much as you'd like, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>